It's looking at people, prosperity, and planet. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to an episode of the Raw Safari podcast that's going to be a little contradictory to something that you've heard on here recently. I am really excited to tell you about today's episode, but first I'm going to pause and tell you uh, that it is, uh, you know, time to make some quick reminders. So uh, hop on to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Raw Safari. Make sure you're following along. On TikTok, it's at Rossafari Pod, and also you can become a patron of the podcast and, and help support the podcast for as little as $3 a month by going to patreon.com slash Rossafari. One of the bonuses of being a patron of the pod is that you get bonus audio from some of the episodes, including this one. And oh, this episode, I, uh, I, every once in a while, something happens with this podcast and I'm just like, well, that worked out pretty well. And this is one of those times. So way back in August, you may remember that I went to the AZA conference in Baltimore. And, uh, while I was there, good friend of me and the pod, Katie Prop, introduced me to Chelsea Wellmer. Chelsea works for the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, a, a really cool organization that you're going to hear a lot about in this episode. And uh, we connected and we wanted to set up an interview and, you know, things get in the way as they do sometimes. And so just recently, I was able to sit down here and finally do my interview with Chelsea. Now, while that was happening and we were trying to figure out how to make this work, I got an email from a PR person uh, asking me if I'd be interested in interviewing Leif Cox from the Orangutan Project. And um, I said, yes, of course. And in that interview, Leif mentioned that he does not believe that there is such a thing as sustainable palm oil and that palm oil really isn't the villain that the conservation community has made it out to be. That was especially shocking to me, given that Leif cares so much about orangutans, uh, which are kind of the poster children for why palm oil is a problem. And it also set up very nicely my interview then with Chelsea Wellmer, who uh, will discuss her views on what Leif said. Uh, and, you know, it's it's not a one is right and one is wrong kind of thing, although I, I do tend to think that what Chelsea says in here makes a lot of sense. But um, to me, it also is just a great illustration of how hard conservation is. There are so many different elements that go into this and so many people involved and so many organizations that have the same goal maybe, but different approaches and all that kind of stuff. And I love whenever a topic like that comes up on the podcast. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this because at the end of the day, you've got two people who are both working very hard to save orangutans, who both believe that they are doing the right thing and can explain it and why they think that is the case. And you kind of get to decide what you think about all of it. Uh, I do think it's interesting. Chelsea does agree with some of what Leif said, so you will get to hear that. There is there's a lot of nuance in the discussions that go into conservation. And, you know, again, that's something that often gets lost in like online debates and discussions and such. So you'll get to hear that. You'll get to hear exactly what the roundtable on sustainable palm oil is, um, a kind of just really cool look at uh, how I think conservation should be done in a lot of ways. You'll get some animal stories. Chelsea has worked as a zookeeper. You'll even get to hear some shout outs of people that you know and love from the podcast, like Mark and Colleen at Cincinnati and 
Katie Prop, of course. So yeah, lots of good stuff. I'm looking forward to sharing this uh, interview with you, and so I'm going to do that now. So without further ado, here is my interview with Chelsea Wellmer of the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. All right, and we are recording. Yay. That's my podcast voice. <laughs> All right. So why don't we start off by you telling me who you are, where you work, and what you do there? Absolutely. So my name is Chelsea Wellmer. I am the Assistant Manager for Market Transformation in North America with the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. So that is quite so a many words. What is, what is a happening? lot of words, <laughs> <laughs> right? So we can we can abbreviate at least uh, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil to RSPO. That's what we're also known as. Uh, and I'm based in Denver, Colorado, but my the organization that I work for really is based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and the work we're doing is all over the world. So I'm part of a much larger organization. Very cool. And I'm assuming that the RSPO cares about um, <clears throat> SPO, sustainable palm oil. So um, let's just dive right into that. We'll, we'll get to you, I promise. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's talk about palm oil and sustainable palm oil and, and why this all matters. Absolutely. So the RSPO was founded in the early 2000s, and the founding members were a group of people um, or organizations, I should say, included the WWF. So World Wildlife Fund, the that iconic panda logo, and also other actors in the supply chain working with palm oil. And really, it was born out of this need that was seen of taking an industry that for a long time was not sustainable and was causing deforestation, which harms wildlife, it harms the people who live locally, and then trying to, to switch it and move it to be more sustainable and making sustainable palm oil the norm. Uh, so that's how it kind of started in the early 2000s. And at this point, the RSPO, 15 plus years later, has a membership base that includes everyone along the supply chain, all of the actors. So the growers, the mills, the companies that make the products that you buy, environmental NGOs, social NGOs, banks and investors. Uh, and they're all really there for the same reason, to make sustainable palm oil the norm. Cool. Um, I think, you know, I feel like everybody thinks they know what the word sustainable means, but nobody actually talks about it any. It's just like a buzzword nowadays, mm -hmm. but it, it is actually more than a buzzword. It matters. Um, so can you give a basic definition of what sustainability is? So for the RSPO, when we're talking about sustainable palm oil, we're talking about certified sustainable palm oil because the RSPO does have a certification standard. So that includes environmental regulations, uh, regulations that involve people that work in the industry or who are in the areas where this industry is operating. There's over 150 standards that we're talking about that the growers have to follow. Everything from no deforestation of high conservation value land, high carbon stock land, primary forest, protection of the animals that are living within these areas or even just passing through these areas. No planting on peat, regardless of depth, uh, which is a big climate change issue because peat is a huge carbon sink. No using fire to prepare land. Uh, limited use of pesticides. And you have to get authorization to actually use pesticides because it's a pretty serious thing. And then all the way up to some of the social standards. So looking at what are the current uh, fair labor standards that are being set by the ILO, and uh, things like no no slave labor, no child labor, equal rights for women in the industry who, um, you know, even if they're pregnant, things that we might take for granted uh, in the U.S. or in other places, but aren't necessarily the standards where we're actually growing palm oil. So really important uh, and also really important that we're looking at both the environmental side and also the social side because people in the environment are connected. Absolutely. Makes sense to me. I have a question for you. Who mm -hmm. the heck is Pete and why does he have a big sink or whatever? You say? <laughs> no, seriously, though, what is what is Pete? And can you explain what that problem is to my listeners? Yeah. So Pete, Pete's this like spongy, mossy layer on the ground. Basically, it's, it's what we call a carbon sink. So it's holding a lot of CO2. And when peat is destroyed, usually by burning to create agricultural land, it's releasing all of that CO2 that it's storing into the atmosphere, which is contributing to climate change around the world. So really important to protect it. Um, the RSPO standard is no planting on peat, regardless of depth. It doesn't matter if it's just a few centimeters all the way, you know, to a, a building size. Um, you can't plant on peat. Okay, cool. Poor peat. No, um, that, that makes sense. <laughs> and um, 
All right. So I, what I want to do as we get into things here is I, I can tell you are very well versed in palm oil and all of the things, which makes sense giving your title and, and job. Mm-hmm. But I don't think everyone is. I think that the average person, even the average like conservation minded person, every Halloween gets mm-hmm. a, a little digital card that says, buy these candies because they use sustainable palm oil and don't use these evil candies because they don't, you know, use sustainable palm oil. And that way you won't kill orangutans for your um, Halloween. And they go, cool, I will do that. And then November hits and it kind of fades in a lot of minds. So can you explain at the most basic level, like, first of all, what is palm oil and what is it doing in our chocolate and what else is it in and all that kind of stuff. And then how is it farmed traditionally so that we know like what the difference is between sustainable and non-sustainable, like real basic palm oil 101. Oh, you're, you're asking for a very complicated topic in a nutshell, which is actually, (laughs) which is great. So in my background is in, in the zoo world, right. And this is what great zoos and organizations that are involved in the environmental um, side of things are doing is trying to teach the public about palm oil. And what we like to say is that palm oil, basically, it's an edible vegetable oil. And I'm saying edible, but it's also not just used in edible applications. It's used everywhere. But it's it's an edible vegetable oil that comes from a very specific palm tree. So not like the palm trees that you might see in Florida or California. Uh, it's this palm tree that's actually originally from West Africa. And what happened was that through colonization, the British took it to Southeast Asia, where it can grow really well, basically can grow really well all along the equator. So these really tropical, high biodiversity areas. And they set it up plantation style. The reason they did this is because this tree produces fruit bunches every two weeks. So you can actually harvest the fruit every two weeks, which is incredible. Most of the other oils that we have, I mean, maybe twice a year, but oftentimes it's just harvesting once a year. So this is kind of like what we've seen as a a magical ingredient that requires far less land, far less resources for such a a higher yield product. so that's kind of why it's it's spread so much. And now it's just been used in so many different applications, the common one being chocolate, right? That's, that's always the, the flagship of palm oil, but it's also used in a lot of different processed foods. It's used in cosmetics, the soaps and shampoos that we, we use on our bodies. It's also used in manufacturing processes. So like a really weird one that not a lot of people realize when you take recycled paper, for example, and try to turn it into something else like toilet paper, they actually use uh, palm oil derivatives because they're what we call surfactants. So they're like a scrubber so they can remove like all of the ink and the impurities in the paper to get that nice, clean, recycled paper content that, that then becomes toilet paper. It's also in cushions, like foam cushions, because it can be used as a bioplastic. So pretty much throughout the day, at some point, and actually usually at multiple points, you are either consuming or touching or using a product that has palm oil in it or in relation to it in some way. Wow, that's fascinating. You're, I love that you you used the term magic because like, even though it is causing problems, it's important to realize that like one thing that grows that quickly and does that much is actually kind of awesome, like that it exists. We just need to handle it properly. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. And that's kind of why we talk about sustainable palm oil versus unsustainable palm oil. So if you if you grow it right in a sustainable way, it's it's amazing. But like any agricultural product, you can grow it in a non-sustainable way. That's true pretty much with everything. And so for a long time, that's historically how it was grown because the environment wasn't as much of a concern at the time. But as consumers, especially in North America and Western Europe, have kind of started to prioritize sustainability in the environment and the products that they're buying, it's become more of an important issue. So that's why we're seeing this push for sustainable palm oil. That makes sense. And, you know, the term sustainable, going back to that for a second, um, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you can just, I, I don't know, I feel like sometimes I talk to people about that term and they think it means like that you can sustain keeping, you know, in this case, keeping the palm oil going. But that's not really what we're talking about here, right? We're, we're talking about sustaining everything around it, right? And, and keeping stuff going. 
Yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit of both. So when we're looking at sustainable palm oil, it is definitely about trying to maintain the the important forest areas around these concessions that are being used for the production of palm oil. But it's also about looking at the, the crop itself and how can we get the highest yield out of the crop. So also about kind of making the crop itself more sustainable in the long run. So how can we get the highest yield? How can we take care of it so it lasts longer? One of my, like the really cool facts I've learned about these oil palm trees that just kind of blows my mind is that they generally are in production for 20 plus years. They're producing for that long. The only reason they get retired is because they usually get so physically tall that it's incredibly difficult for the workers to be able to harvest their fruit bunches from the trees because it's all still done by hand. So they're literally just too tall to actually get the fruit off of. So that's when you can retire an oil palm plantation. So yeah, sustainability all around, basically, if we do it right. Cool. Makes sense. And, and so how, how, you know, without going through all 150 points, how, (laughs) how do we become a sustainable producer of palm oil? Like what's, what is the difference? So if, if you're following the RSPO's principles and criteria, so the rules that they've set out for the growers, um, really it's looking at people, prosperity, and planet. So, since, since we're on your podcast, right, we're looking at animals here. Let's talk about the planet piece for a second. Um, what that largely means is you can only be planting on degraded land. So land that's not a, a primary forest. That's not a forest that has high, high biodiversity, high conservation value. Um, one of the really interesting things that I think that we take for granted here is that when we go to agricultural areas like in North America, for example, we're not thinking about these really amazing wild species that might walk through our agriculture areas, right? But that's something that people have to deal with in places like Southeast Asia, in places like the Amazon, in Western Africa. So protection of an Asian elephant that might just start walking through your land, um, which I would think be the coolest thing to see. Protection of those species, right? Protection of those species and also protection of the workers who are working on on those uh, concessions. And then also protection of the the waterways that are next to these concessions that the riparian so it's protection of, of the peat that we talked about so those spongy mossy layers that hold so much carbon stock uh, not using fire to prepare land that was often kind of a, a traditional way to prepare land for planting was just let's let's burn it down uh, but that causes an environmental problem obviously but also uh, a <laughs> A social problem as well when we talk about like air pollution, right? So that can in fact uh, affect the people that live in the area of Southeast Asia when they're when they're burning so much. So not using fire at all, big rule. Um, the really cool thing is that a lot of these principles and criteria were updated or strengthened in 2018. That's the last time the RSPO ratified the principles and criteria, and they ratify it every five years. So we're actually getting ready to to ratify again in 2023. And so right now we're looking at what are our standards? How can we improve them? How What needs to be updated? And trying to introduce it to all of the members of the RSPO, even introduce it to the public. The, the process is very transparent um, to get the public involved. And we can all look at that and update it as we see accordingly for the next five years. Very cool. Um, okay, so I think we have a, a pretty decent handle now on, you know, why this matters and what palm oil is and sustainability and all that jazz. But what is the RSPO? Like in terms of, you know, I don't know. It's just a very interesting um, name and like who makes y'all official and like you're using these big words like ratify and certify and all that stuff. Can you explain like what this organization is? Yeah. So the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, the RSPO, was founded back in the early 2000s, like 2004-ish. And it is comprised of all of the stakeholders in the palm oil industry. So that's the growers, the uh, investors, the mills, the manufacturers, consumer good manufacturers, the retailers that sell the product, the environmental NGOs, the social NGOs. And the RSPO is actually, it is a nonprofit. I don't think a lot of people realize that, but it is, it's a working nonprofit with the goal to make sustainable palm oil the norm. So it's kind of a holistic approach to, to sustainability. When we talk about like the principles and criteria and, and ratifying them, for example, we're talking about a, a membership base that is saying, okay, here's what we want to see moving forward. And let's let like let's vote on whether or not we agree. Okay, for example. So I think it's really 
astounding that we can get so many different stakeholders for so many different areas of, of one industry to kind of have this conversation. I'll be sitting at the table. Hint, hint. That's why it's called round table. I like it. Uh, Right. Do you actually and, have a round table anywhere in your building? I'm just asking. <laughs> well, I, I work from home, so I I should get one right to have my meetings. Um, <laughs> but it's it's really cool to to bring all of these different voices together to to push the industry to be more sustainable um, and drive that change. So that's a little bit about us. We have uh, a lot of environmental members. That's actually how I got involved with the RSPO. So really big push from the zoo and aquarium community. They make up kind of the bulk of the environmental organizations that are within the RSPO and are pushing for that change, uh, which I think is really cool. WWF is a big one. They were actually one of the founding members of the RSPO. Very cool. And that is rare. Just, um, you know, for, for those listening, um, to have all of the different stakeholders at the well, there we go again at the table, um, <laughs> is genuinely shocking. I feel like most of the conservation discussions that I have are built around the idea of trying to get all the different stakeholders with their various values and competing, you know, desires and such to, to the, the table. Now I'm just can't, I can't use any other analogy now that you said <laughs> that. Um, but you know, involved and then, um, but like people don't want to. And so it becomes almost competitive with like, all right, well, we've got to, you know, we're working together to stop these evil corporations. Whereas you're saying, Hey, let's y'all aren't evil. Let's find a way to make this work. Right. And that's, that's very cool. Yeah, exactly. And I think, especially in the last couple of years, we've really seen that a lot of our supply chains, especially international supply chains can be so delicate and can be disrupted so easily. Um, but also there are so many markets and places that people can sell out there. So like, let's say tomorrow, for example, like this is definitely not going to happen, but let's say tomorrow, suddenly North American buyers are like, we're not going to buy palm oil anymore. There are dozens of other countries, dozens of areas around the world that that are still buying this product. So if, if we're not working with the people in this industry, they can just go work with somebody else. And maybe those other people don't currently support sustainability at the same level. So I think, you know, this concept of of boycotting um, or trying to not work with everybody who's a stakeholder is an incredibly difficult and unproductive thing to do. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting to me. All right. So I guess what I'm wondering is, um, as far as like, I, I'm sure that it would be boring to ask for an organizational history, but how did, how did this organization come together with, with all these different groups? Like, I can't picture that happening. That doesn't happen a lot in conservation. Do you know how that happened and, and why? Yeah, so so really what what happened was there's like this this pressing global call for sustainability within the industry uh, that arose in the early 2000s. So it was in 2004, uh, WWF, so environmental nonprofit, Unilever, right, a consumer goods manufacturer and some other actors within the industry like growers, they got together and they had a discussion of, you know, what what do we need to do? And that's how the roundtable on sustainable palm oil was formed, was these different actors along the supply chain meeting and deciding we need to work on this together. Uh, and since then, it's snowballed. We're at over 5,000 members across the different stakeholder groups. Uh, and all of them can participate in the RSPO and really contribute to its forward movement. That's really amazing and really unique in the conservation world, I think. Um, sometimes I feel like, you know, I see multiple organizations working on the same thing and I'm like, can't y'all just be friends? Like, can't, can't those resources, you know, I mean, I get it. And, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. And it's so cool to see y'all coming together. Um, I almost said to the table again, but my listeners will beat me if I keep that going. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's really cool to see all of that just kind of coming together in such a cool way here. Um, you know, and we're talking, like we said, we talk, I know this is important for everything, but, uh, we, we talk about land and we talk about people, but of course it's an animal podcast. Um, and I think everyone knows that orangutans are the poster animal for palm oil, but is it just orangutans that we're saving? And what, why is it orangutans that, that, you know, care so much about palm oil and all of that? Orangutans are definitely like the flagship species of palm oil conservation. We talk about sustainable palm oil. I think that's because they're just such a charismatic animal. They're so like us. They're so relatable. Um, 
really, really cool. But it's honestly affecting pretty much any species that you can find in, in a tropical area where oil palms are being grown for this production. So when we're talking about Southeast Asia, for example, other charismatic species that are being impacted are Asian elephants. You have like Malayan tigers, Sumatran tigers, um, Sumatran rhinos, kind of they're, they're being impacted, though. Um, their conservation issues a little bit more because they're just so spread out because there's so few of them now. But historically, that would be a, a environmental concern for them. And then you look all the way towards like West and Central Africa. So you have animals like chimpanzees, Western lowland gorillas, okapi, uh, the African forest elephant. And then you go a little bit further west, all the way to South America, Central America, and you're looking at sloths, jaguars, anteaters, tapirs. So really cool species across the board that are being impacted and why palm oil has such a huge um, kind of awareness around it in terms of the conservation and the sustainability impact. Cool. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you know, normally this is how I start my episodes, but I was, I was too curious about the organization, but now I want to learn a little bit about Chelsea. So, um, tell me, tell me some stuff about you. Um, you know, how did you get into this world? How did you get to the RSPO? All that good stuff. I, I don't know if this is the common answer you hear when we're talking about like the zoo world and conservation. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to feel bad about it. I used to, right? But I fell into it, which I think is different. Like I had no idea when I was growing up that working in a zoo or working in conservation was a viable career path. So when I went to school, nothing to do with conservation and sustainability. It's all been learned through actual like real life experience at this point. Me too. So so I'm, I'm here for that. Like that's really cool. Right? What, what did you study? I'm curious. Yeah, I, I have a BA. Um, that's it right now. And I triple majored in archaeology, art history, and classics. Holy crap, you're a bigger nerd than me. That's impressive. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right. I think I did like a 180 switch. Like I was digging in the ground for people's trash, right? And now I'm working to prevent people from putting trash in the ground. Um, so working on sustainability. And so what, what ended up happening was uh, after college, I decided to go into the Peace Corps. And I got accepted. And in between my my graduation and actually going into uh, my Peace Corps service, I needed just like a really short part time job. And I, I got one that was really about environmental education, um, working with some animals that they had. It was, it was an outdoor education camp. And because of that experience, when I came back from the Peace Corps, again, looking for a job, uh, I actually landed at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden. So that that's kind of my start in the zoological community. Okay, well, let's pause there because I have a big love of Cincy and have had mm -hmm. many current and former Cincy people on. They are they are a huge uh, help to the podcast. Um, so, tell me about your time at Cincy. What what did you do there? And did you you know get to know anybody awesome there or anything like that? Got to know a lot of awesome people, uh, several of whom I believe have been on your podcast. I think so, uh, yeah. Shout out, shout out to the recent edition of Colleen and Mark, who I know you talked to fairly recently. Uh, but when I was at Cincinnati Zoo, I got to do what I love most, and that's talking to people about conservation. So I was hired as part of their Wild Encounters team. So it was like a Wild Encounters interpreter. Uh, really, that meant getting to work with the ambassador animals. So bringing them out into the public, talking to the guests about these animals and how cool they were, making them fall in love with the animals and talking about how the guests could, you know, do little behaviors to help that animal conservation wise. Let's talk about the broader conservation issues surrounding this animal. Uh, so that's how I started at Cincinnati Zoo. I was also part of their inaugural AmeriCorps group that they started there. And uh, that role was as the like the visitor engagement member. So really got to play around with how are we actually telling our conservation stories and kind of changing up that messaging and seeing if it was better, um, if it was worse than what we were doing, but how can we change conservation storytelling to have a better impact? That's really cool. And that's actually something I'm really interested in. So I'm doing Project Dragonfly right now, mm -hmm. uh, working towards my master's. And I, I just finished my first semester. Literally, I submitted my last assignment like yesterday. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the heck I'm doing with it, honestly. But a big thing for me is obviously conservation messaging. And so I, I'm trying to look into like signage and other things that we use there and how effective. My, my first actual like 
you know, study that I did for Project Dragonfly was about the uh, effects of different types of signage at an exhibit at the Cleveland Zoo. And um, yeah, that's I'm I'm so interested in that kind of messaging thing. Um, yeah, that's really cool that that y'all were working on that, and and you know. I think that's really powerful. And I guess it probably had some good effects because Cincinnati is one of the best when it comes to that. Yeah, since Cincinnati's doing a great job. Uh, definitely loved my time there. Luckily, I get to visit a lot because my husband's family is from Cincinnati. So when we ever, nice. whenever we go back, I'm like, you know, we're going to the zoo at least once, right? <laughs> that's <laughs> so awesome. I'm always dragging them there. <laughs> I'm curious, did you um, overlap with uh, Katie Prop when she was uh, in that area at all? Or did you meet her in the Denver world? You know, it's really funny. We actually met in the AZA world uh, okay. recently at the at the conference in Baltimore. Oh, wait, wait. Um, you guys just – okay, so hold on because when <laughs> – that's hilarious. Okay, so for my listeners and for everyone else, Chelsea and I oh, connected almost at the AZA conference except we basically missed each other. But the whole reason why was that Katie Prop was singing your praises. And <laughs> I just assumed that y'all were like long-term friends, but you guys just met at the conference? We we just met at the conference, um, <laughs> did not know of each other. I think we probably knew a little bit of each other's work, but not the people behind it. Uh, and then funnily found out that we've been kind of like orbiting each other for years now. So I believe she was there while I was at Cincinnati, but Cincinnati is kind of a larger zoo and has so many employees that I'm sure I sat in a meeting with her at some point, like an all staff meeting, but I did not know her personally. And then turns out we both moved to Colorado, still doing conservation work. <laughs> I was going to say, that's amazing. I just assumed that y'all knew each other, especially, you know, like you said, Cincy, Denver, uh, you're all in. Yeah, that's, you guys should be best friends because that would be adorable. You can just go and hang out at bars and, and talk about saving animals and it'll be lovely. So <laughs> I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, we'll meet up and send you a picture. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. That would make, that would legitimately make me so happy. But that's so funny. This is what I love about the conservation world, though. Like we were all at that conference and like making these great connections. And now here we are, you know, sharing your message and stuff. And like y'all didn't even know each other. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Like Katie literally just ran up to me one night. I think it was at dinner and was like, John, there's a person here that I have to introduce you to because uh, your podcast is going to be awesome. And I was like, OK. And of course she did it, you know, just like that with the usual amount of Katie prop speed and intensity. And she's like, no, she's like, she's here and she's really cool and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, OK, oh, OK, cool. And I did not realize y'all had just met. That's that's adorable, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But I agree with you. Like, that's what I love about the conservation community is, is everyone is so supportive of the work we're doing. Um, and I, but, you know, I'm sure you've talked about this so much on your podcast, but like so many people don't realize that zoos are these huge conservation organizations that are really pushing the industry to do better. I mean, zoos have such a huge platform to reach the public. Right. Again, I'm sure you said it a million times. Um, but that's what I think is so cool about it. And and Yeah. No, definitely. And that's actually one thing that um, I try to push, you know, when I talk to people, especially like PR people and, su and stuff like that, because I book my interviews through PR people normally, you know, I do push them, you know, as, as much as I can without, you know, losing my podcast connection, but to be like, hey, I love your Instagram feed. I really, you do a great job curating it. What if maybe just like once a week you, oh, I don't know, talked about the amazing conservation work you do instead of showing another cute animal and saying why it's cute? Like, that's important, too. It really is. But I, I'm amazed at the amount of zoos that I get to. And when I'm there, I'm learning about their conservation efforts for the first time, like as I'm doing an interview, when I'm somebody who actively seeks this out and looks for it, and I can't even find that stuff sometimes, you know? The work is incredible. The communication of it needs to, to step up at a lot of zoos, though. Yeah. And well, so that's actually kind of a really good segue into to why I ended up in the palm oil world. So from from Cincinnati Zoo, I went to the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo in Colorado Springs. I don't know if you've ever been. Also a really great zoo. Highly recommend. Super unique on the side of a mountain. And what I really loved about the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo while I was there was that they, again, heavily involved in conservation initiatives and they kind of took it a step further, in my opinion. And they said, well, we can talk about conservation but how can we actually make this like a feasible action for the public? And so the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo has different legacy projects, so conservation initiatives that they're very heavily involved in. And one of them is orangutans and palm oil. And so that's kind of how they stepped up. They were the first zoo to ever join the RSPO, actually, and they're kind of spearheading the movement within North America. Uh, but then they created their infamous palm oil app uh, that I moved to Colorado Springs to work on that program and to run that app. 
Oh, wow. That's really cool. Okay. Yeah. So I, I knew about the app. I, I have not made it to Cheyenne Mountain Zoo and mm-hmm. I have driven past the zoo when it was closed and I was on, on a, you know, on a gig on tour and I, I couldn't stop. And it like hurt my heart because it is, it is that and point defiance are the two in the country that I most want to get to that I haven't been to yet. Um, and so, yeah, that, that does make me sad, but I'm excited to have you on. And I know that like you even went ahead and like spoke to the zoo to let them know you're going to be on and stuff and talking about things a little bit. Right. Am I remembering that? Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. And also I'm really excited to have somebody, you know, from Cheyenne Mountain Zoo on the podcast, even if you're not there anymore, but like you're here, you were there. They let you, this is cool. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm cheating to get Cheyenne Mountain Zoo on, but um, tell me a little <laughs> bit about your time at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo and what, what you were doing there and what animals you worked with and all that stuff. Yeah. So Kind of the the transition from Cincinnati Zoo to Shine Mountain Zoo, I definitely had to give up working more directly with animals. That wasn't going to be my role at Shine Mountain Zoo anymore. Uh, but really, it was having a bigger impact in, in conservation work and important conservation work. So a little bit of backstory. So what happened with the Shine Mountain Zoo is that one of the orangutan caretakers, uh, Dina, she went to our CEO, Bob Chastain, and told him about how she had heard of palm oil and how palm oil is this, the, the big bad, the big scary. And at the time they were saying that worst case scenario, orangutans could be extinct within like 10 years. Right. And so as a zoological organization that was caring for orangutans, um, they felt it was our duty to start talking about palm oil and the conservation work needed around it. And so what's really cool is the CEO at the time. Um, and even now still, he said, if we're going to do this, let's, let's do it right. And let's go all in. And, this started as a conservation initiative at the Shine Mountain Zoo with just multiple staff members volunteering their time outside of the regular jobs uh, to kind of push palm oil forward. And at the very beginning, they actually were saying to boycott palm oil. Fun fact. Um, that was a long, long time ago, like over 10 years ago. And what happened is that they went on what they call like a you can tell you're, you're interviewing like, a younger person <laughs> when you're like a long time ago, 10 years ago. Like, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, but okay. <laughs> I'll say it was a long time ago. It was, it was before my time at the Shine Mountain Zoo. Uh, they went on a, what they call like a fact-finding mission. They went to Indonesia, Malaysia and had, I mean, dozens of meetings with growers and actually like local chieftains who lived around these plantations. They met with the RSPO. They met with government officials to kind of talk about palm oil learn like what's actually happening on the ground and, and what they were saying, you know, these experts in C2, what, what, they, what were they saying we need to do to, to reverse the damage and to be more sustainable and what's the solution. And so from that trip and that experience, that's when they first learned about the RSPO and said, Hey, this is an organization we really need to support and we're going to join. Uh, so they were kind of the catalyst in, in the zoos that actually ended up joining the RSPO. Um, and then for the the you know crown jewel of the program the app that was created that really started as they wanted consumers to be able to understand which companies to support when shopping and started as just like a little printout guide that you could cut out and stick in your wallet and it's grown so much to so many companies that i mean if we were to try to print it out it would cover your house right like it'd be just way too many, which is really great, but not feasible for a printout anymore. So an app was created to allow consumers to scan the barcodes of products. And then the app will tell them how that company's doing in terms of sourcing sustainable palm oil. Which is really, really awesome. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I know I've promoted the app a bunch of times on here, but um, for people who haven't heard that yet, how can you go about getting the app? Yeah. So if someone's had the app for a long time, it actually just relaunched in the last year. Um, so the the new way to find the app, if it didn't automatically update on your phone, or if you haven't looked at it recently, is to just go into the Apple App Store or Google Play, and you can type in palm oil scan, and you'll see a logo that's a green orangutan, uh, and you can, you can download that app uh, onto your phone. And what's really cool about this relaunch of the app is that the old app that Shine Mountain Zoo Created was really only available for customers in the U.S. and Canada, but now the app is available. It's in the U.S., it's in Canada, it's launched in the U.K., it's preparing to launch in New Zealand, Australia, and that was because there is so much demand from people worldwide who are contacting the zoo being like, we really want this app in, in our areas, when are you going to bring it here? And so Shine Mountain Zoo partnered with WAZA, so the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and then other stakeholders like Chester Zoo and Auckland Zoo, um, all are working together to bring this app to be more global. 
That is so cool. And I didn't know that it had relaunched. I'm actually, as we're speaking, I just downloaded the new because it's important to have that on your phone. So that's, that's really good to know. That's very cool. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that's really exciting. And, uh, I guess, um, I was just wondering if you could name every company that is doing good sustainable pump. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But well, no, you know, it's, it's really funny about that though, because, um, what's really common is like people will download the app and they'll use it, you know, for one or two grocery shopping trips and they're like, okay, like, I know which products that I want to buy are sustainable and which aren't. And then they'll um, often delete the app or kind of stop using it. And what I like to tell people is that app is being updated constantly. And those ratings for those companies uh, are getting, their companies are getting audited once a year. And so those ratings have the potential to change once a year, if not more, depending on the circumstances. So really, I think it's important to kind of use it constantly because there are folks at the Shine Mountain Zoo, there are folks at Chester Zoo, Auckland Zoo, who are working to make sure that these are the most up-to-date ratings you can find, the most up-to-date information to support the companies. That is good to know. I am definitely guilty of the check once and be like, okay, cool, now I can buy this stuff thing. Right. So good to know, good to know. <clears throat> guilty, guilty. But, uh, <laughs> you know, hey, that's that's good to know. Um, man, that's – I love this. I love the merge of technology and um, conservation education, obviously, says the podcaster. But I really do think it's, like, really important and, and so much easier to – I, I – I, um, I'm just a big believer that, you know, I read these papers about what we need to do to save the planet and what we can do to save the planet for Project Dragonfly all the time. And some of them are just so realistic and like, look, people are going to people and we need to meet them in the middle. Mm -hmm. And some are like, cool, all we need to do is end globalization, get every single local community back to producing everything that they need and we'll be fine. And I'm like, that no, that's just, it's not going to happen. You know, I mean, sadly, but it's, it's not going to happen. And, you know, um, so yeah, I think it's really cool when we meet people where they are. Hey, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people have smartphones now. And, and here's an opportunity to just, uh, waste a little battery and, um, you know, help save the planet. That's pretty solid. I, I dig that. I dig that. So how did you go from the zoo to the RSPO? And do you miss having like, even though you weren't working as regularly with animals um, at Cheyenne Mountain, do you miss having, you know, a zoo as your workplace? hundred <laughs> uh, <laughs> percent. So I do miss having a zoo as my workplace, but I, I love the work that I'm doing with the RSPO. So what happened was because of my job at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, working so heavily on palm oil and promoting sustainable palm oil and working with the RSPO themselves, um, there was an opportunity at the RSPO that came up that, it was, it made sense as the next step in my career to kind of increase the impact. So now with my new job, I'm working a lot more closely with the companies in North America who are members of the RSPO and even the companies who want to be and, and want to care about their sustainable palm oil sourcing uh, to make sure that, you know, they're doing it right. Um, and kind of having this ripple effect because then when we get companies in North America to support sustainable palm oil, they're supporting the, the growers on the ground um, in the countries that are actually growing the oil palm trees and producing palm oil. So really cool global effect my new job has. Uh, but the downside is, yes, I don't get to walk outside my office and get to see an orangutan or a lion or, you know, a really cool Brazilian rainbow boa that some somebody has out and is teaching the public about. Yeah, that's that's uh that's what makes me sad about my job too. Um, so I, I can I can relate to that. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's cool though. That like, so you're so conservation focused that it wasn't about like zookeeping for you. It wasn't about taking care of the animals for you. Although, of course, it was wildly important while you were doing it. But it really all you know all comes down to like you know conservation work and saving animals in in the wild, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I love the animals, um, but I saw that I could have a bigger impact in talking to people instead of directly working with the animals, maybe not having as much face to face with people, even though I'll say at this point, it seems like anybody who is an animal caretaker or a zookeeper in a zoological setting, like really, they have to be able to talk to people about conservation. That's kind of a requirement of the job now um, because it's so important. But I, yes, I saw that I could have a big impact this way and, and still be in conservation. Yeah, that's really awesome. I love that. What, um, when you were working with animals, what were some mm -hmm. of your favorites though? Oh, you can't pick favorites. No, 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 no. Okay. So this is how we know that you, I, I know that you haven't listened to a lot of Rasafari yet, but in, in 200 plus episodes, almost everyone tries to tell me they don't have a favorite. Mm -hmm. and then tells me their favorites. So we just have a rule on this podcast that if you say you don't have favorites, you're lying. And remember, the animals aren't listening. 
<laughs> oh gosh, now I have like, and you're—I can't bring it down to just one. Um, no, but you know what's funny? I really—I'll admit this on a podcast. Um, before I started my role at the Shine Mountain Zoo, that obviously we talked earlier about how orangutans are kind of the flagship species for palm whale. Before I started working at the Shine Mountain Zoo and got to know the orangutans really closely because I was working with their care team on conservation issues, I was not a primate person. Like, I think, I mean, I think they're great, like nothing against them. It was just, I was kind of lukewarm about it. I was like, yeah, they're cool. But like, I loved other species and would, you know, my eyes would light up when I saw those other ones and not necessarily primates. And I'm like, I was wrong. Like, I was so wrong. Um, And so at the Shine Mountain Zoo, there is uh, a female born in orangutan. Her name is Hadia, and she is so charismatic. And I think anyone from Shine Mountain Zoo who has visited Shine Mountain Zoo wouldn't be surprised to hear me say that she is one of my favorites because she is pretty much everybody's favorite. Um, but yeah, I'll have to go visit her soon because I'm sure she's like, where is Chelsea? Why hasn't she come to visit me soon? Um, that's one of the things I love about them is because they're so smart. Yeah, no, absolutely. I... I've had that. So I was not uh, into great apes very much at all either mm-hmm. until I did an episode where uh, Tiffany James at Zoo Knoxville was like, I'm going to make you fall in love with my great apes. <laughs> and she took me and, you know, let me meet them. I mean, obviously, like, not meet meat because you can't do that with yeah. gorillas. But, you know, Protected like, barrier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, like, I, you know, got to know their personalities and hang out with them and see her relationship with them. And yeah, I walked away in love with them. And like elephants were another animal species that I just like, they're cool. They're big. They're kind of like rocks that sway. And, um, you know, then I recently did that thing where I was, was drumming with, uh, Emily and, um, damn, if I don't just love elephants now and just like stare at them with like my heart, like, I don't know. It's, it's like that thing in the Grinch where your heart grows like three times, you know? And that's happened to me with like every species I've met now to the point where when people are like, are there any animals you don't like? I'm like, no, I even used to be an arachnophobe and now love spiders and have handled tarantulas and stuff because how can you not love them? They're amazing. Everything is amazing except for humans. Humans are still the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and it's really funny. Like, I, you know, there, I think when you see a lot of zoo people, they'll start naming like individual animals often, right? Like, as their favorites, because they kind of know the, the quirks of those individual animals a little bit more. But then in terms of like a species at this point, I would say my favorite animal is a beaver. Beavers are so cool. I love (laughs) that. A lot of people look at me weird when they say, like, when I say that, and I'm like, no, it's, I mean, it's because of the conservation work that beavers do. They're little conservationists. Um, it certainly helps that they're they're cute and fluffy, right? Um, but they're they're little conservationists. And as someone who's living in Colorado, I think I can really appreciate the work that beavers do. If you just let them do beaver things, uh, they're helping with water retention. They're helping prevent forest fires. And I think that's so incredible. Oh my gosh, it so is. Also, it just comes down to they really do have personalities. I think so many people think that like certain animals don't have personalities. Um, I remember I was at the Columbus Zoo one time and trying to get a good picture of of one of the beavers there. And they the the beaver in question um seemed to get annoyed at me. And I wasn't using flash or anything, like just normal stuff, but like I, I don't know, maybe I was disturbing it or something. I, I don't know. And um, I, I tried to take a picture and the, the glass was kind of muddy. So I tried to take another picture and the glass was kind of muddy. And I went to take a third one and it just spun around and slapped its tail down and splashed water all over me. And I was like, oh, all right, I'm out. And I, <laughs> I, I hear you. You don't want to be photographed. It's fine. Yep, but that's it, a no. That's it was a very no intentional. Yeah. And it then turned and just stared me down. I was like, okay, I'm leaving. That, you're good. You're good. But yeah, so many beavers are awesome. That's hilarious. Um, so, you know, to take it back to palm oil for a second, mm-hmm. I um, I recently uh, had had a guest on who, who basically gave the opinion that, um, first of all, there is no such thing as sustainable palm oil. Mm-hmm. And second of all, that if we eliminate um, the use of palm oil uh, entirely, or if we, you know, at least the unsustainable kind, um, then the land will be destroyed with other things that are easy and quick to grow, like the plants that make paper and stuff like that. Uh, I'm curious what your take on that is. Yeah. So, uh, Really interesting question. I would say there are some things in there that I agree with and some things that I disagree with um, because palm oil is such a complex issue. So that's actually pretty normal and why it's really difficult to talk about sometimes with the public when 
the media uh, makes it seem like it's a really simple issue when it's not. So I would disagree when someone says that there's no such thing as sustainable palm oil. Uh, I think we need to recognize that when we're talking about sustainable palm oil, it certainly has been a journey. And I feel like the word journey is used so much in conservation, but that's because it really is. You know, the RSPO was started in 2004. Uh, these standards have continuously improved over the years and are going to keep improving. And right now, when we're talking about sustainable palm oil, the RSPO is only certifying roughly 20 percent of the global supply chain. So we're not saying all palm oil and nearly not even half of palm oil. It's really only 20%, which I think kind of surprises some people. So it's actually, it's a pretty high standard to achieve. Uh, so kudos to the growers, um, whether they're big companies or whether they're smallholders like family farms who are working to make their production more sustainable. And we can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like. In terms of his comment about if we were to suddenly stop supporting palm oil or suddenly everyone just stopped growing oil palm trees and stopped producing it, like they're going to move on to something else. I absolutely agree. hundred uh, percent. Again, people are going to people. Uh, we're talking about livelihoods here, right? So part of what the RSPO is looking at is making sure that the people who are in the industry and are producing palm oil are being supportive, supported and can can make enough money to feed their family, to send their kids to school, to to live life at a level that is is normal, right? And not be stricken by poverty because a lot of the areas where they do produce palm oil are areas that are susceptible to poverty, unfortunately. Um, so if somebody who is a farmer gets told that they can't grow oil palm trees anymore, they're not just gonna stop working and, and just be like, I give up. They're gonna move on to something else. And if they're in the agricultural field, that could be rubber trees, that could be timber, uh, there's a number of different products that they could could start growing instead of palm oil that would cause deforestation. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. But but if we stick with sustainable growth in that place, then those people can't come in and grow those things, right? Yeah. So kind of the concept is, and, and what's also really interesting is that when we talk about palm oil production. A little over 40% of the uh, people who are growing palm oil or producing palm oil, like growing the oil palm trees, they are smallholder farmers. So they're family farms that have less than 50 hectares of land. So they're not like the big bad industry that I think some people picture in their in their mind, even though a lot of those, you know, quote unquote, big bad industry are actually doing great things now. Uh, they're family farms and they need to be able to make a livelihood to support those families. And so yeah, uh, that's what I think is so cool about the RSPO is looking specifically about at the standards and how can um, we make those standards and how can the RSPO support the smallholders that want to to meet those standards. Um, because like we said at the beginning, conservation is a people issue, right? Conservation issues are caused by people, but that means that people are going to be the solution. And so getting them actually directly involved in sustainability is, I think, way better than just kind of cutting them off. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense to me. All right. So, um, you know, you've mentioned that the RSPO um, is a certification organization, amongst other things. Y'all like certify, you know, places. So first of all, what happens if people um, or places or whatever organizations, you tell me, you're the one who knows, uh, you know, don't end up holding up those standards? And also, do you have any way to, to know that they're working? Yes. So obviously the standards have been set pretty high. And what happens if a, a grower, for example, isn't following the standards, like if they if they break one of the principles and criteria, quote unquote, break a rule, uh, there is kind of a procedure in place. So the RSPO will work with those organizations to try to get them back on track. And depending on the severity of what happened, there's also a remediation and compensation procedure. Uh, what that means is that it could be Anything from needing to reforest an area to having to pay a certain amount of money, maybe to parties that were affected by what whatever happened. So there is a procedure in place for if, and a big if, if a grower does not follow the principles and criteria. Um, and I think it's really important to note, too, that the RSPO is a voluntary standard, is a voluntary organization. So these companies that do join the RSPO, uh, they're, they're voluntarily doing it. No one's making them. Right. So we also want to be able to work with them if there is a misstep to kind of get them to get them back on track, because if we decided to kick them out over one infraction in the beginning, 
then they're no longer going to be part of the organization and they can just do whatever they want up to deforestation. So I think it's really important, again, that that whole concept of like working together with all of the stakeholders across the supply chain. And what we've seen from this practice, which is really cool, is that there was actually an independent study that was conducted. Uh, it was a life cycle assessment, and they found that RSPO certified palm oil has a 20% lower biodiversity impact. So it is having an impact. Uh, so it is helping protect the species that that live in and around these areas. That's awesome. I love that. Also, uh, you may notice that I'm dancing around a lot. So I'm in this weird housing right now because I'm, I'm doing a gig and they have no tables or chairs in this entire place that they, they got us to live. So I'm sitting on the floor with my mic on the bed, trying to like somehow not cramp up everywhere when I'm talking to you. So like, (laughs) I promise you I'm not bored or I don't have ADHD, nothing like that. I'm just literally trying to like, right now, as I'm sitting up close to the mic, I am sitting with my legs crossed and leaning over. And I'm just trying to not do that for the whole hour plus of our conversation. (laughs) So just if you see the weirdness, because I know I was like in the corner of the screen for a second there and I was like, ah, this gotta look weird. (laughs) You know what? I think uh, that's going to be a, like, human experience across the board, especially as we've gone really virtual. I think everyone's been in a weird position. Yeah, <laughs> we've done yeah. virtual interviews and, and calls, so no worries. <laughs> yeah, I'm like doing, you're giving this very serious answer and I'm like doing yoga. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't distracting, don't worry. <laughs> okay, good, good. That's always the concern. And I'll probably leave this part in the podcast because I always like kind of laughing at myself on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So one of the things that I find interesting about the RSPO is that you actually have, you know, like we talked about all the different stakeholders involved, which is really cool, uh, including the companies who are, you know, voluntarily being a part of this, which is even cooler because it shows that they care. Um, Is it a two way street, though? Are they just like meeting the standards or if they care about the standards, are they also trying to help get out the word about sustainable palm oil and, and help with conservation efforts? Absolutely. So what's really cool is that I think a lot of people when we talk about like what is sustainable is there's kind of this idyllic version of, again, like that that small family farm, very local, which is so incredibly important in which the RSPO is actively working in and supporting. But realistically, there's also another side to the industry that is these larger corporations who are working on a, a kind of a larger scale and having more of a global impact. And so when we have these larger members join the RSPO, uh, they can have a really important difference in promoting sustainable palm oil or even protecting biodiversity. So like, for example, we have uh, a member in Northern Amazon, they're called Agropalma, and they've been given this concession of land to use for production. And they've actually set aside 60% of it to be conserved, which I think is amazing. So they have this, like, not only do they have their oil palm that they're growing and then producing palm oil, they also have this like conservation force that they've created and that they're kind of overseeing at this point. So these big companies can make a huge difference because they're working at such a high scale. And then when we look at some of like the big consumer uh, goods manufacturers, the big retailers in North America, um, what I find really fascinating and I'm going to, I'm going to pause for a second because do you know, like, have you ever heard the concept of like when you meet an animal for the first time, like when I was working with animals, some of them, they would tell me like the age and say, oh, yeah, this animal's five years old. And then even though I was working there for another five years, I'd be like, oh, yeah, the animal's only five years old. Like the animal never yeah. aged. Oh, totally, totally. It's like stuck in your brain, right? So I think what happened was is that in the early 2000s, a lot of people got upset with some of the the environmental impacts that they thought that these larger companies were having. In response to the public outcry, some of the companies that we saw as like the worst offenders are now some of the ones that are doing the best in terms of going the extra mile and supporting sustainable palm oil. Um, but I think sometimes the public has a hard time forgetting that that original, you know, concept that was in their brain and seeing the progress that's been made over the last 15 plus years. Um, so we have companies in North America who are investing in satellite technology to monitor forests in real time and find if like, for example, there's a fire happening, where is that fire occurring and, and can we stop it? Um, we have companies who are sourcing 100% physically certified sustainable palm oil, but then they still are putting extra money to support smallholders, even though they've kind of done their duty in supporting sustainable palm oil. They're like, okay, well, let's let's give some extra money to smallholders and let's support them. So we have some really cool work that that major corporations are doing across the globe. 
That's awesome. I, I really love hearing that. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think in general, we have this thing where like if a person or a company or whatever does something wrong and gets called out for it, then they're just evil forever. And that's not really how the world works. And I don't think any of us uh, talking or listening to this podcast um, would want to be judged by the worst thing that we ever did. And, uh, you know, especially if it was something that was a growth moment for us. So that's that's very cool. All right. Um, How can people get involved? How can people support the RSPO? Um, You know, should they download the app? How, How can people help? Yeah, I think I think downloading the the Waza Palm Oil Scan app is a very easy action for the average consumer, uh, assuming that you live in like the US, Canada, uh, UK, New Zealand, Australia, that's a great action. I think directly supporting the RSPO, I would say just learn more about it. Uh, head over to rspo.org. That's the website. It was actually just relaunched. There's some really beautiful pictures and videos on there. Like on the homepage, there's this image or it's actually a video that comes across and it's a tiger and I love it. Um, so go there just to learn about it because I think there's still this misconception about like what palm oil is and people still think palm oil is this really bad thing when hopefully I've made it clear that if we boycott palm oil, like it's, it's not going to support the people who live there and they're going to do something else. But also like if we were to boycott palm oil, we're just going to have to switch to a different oil, like rapeseed, canola, maybe soy and those, you know, in soy specifically, um, if it's not grown sustainably, that requires even more land and it's going to be grown in, in the Amazon. So also big deforestation impact. Right. So I would say go to the RSPO's website, learn about what the RSPO is doing, um, start asking those questions of like, oh, well, if I boycotted palm oil, what would be replaced instead? And what's the environmental impact? Does that kind of go the extra couple of questions after, you know, you might think to boycott palm oil? And hopefully you'll realize that sustainable palm oil is, is a really great viable solution. The RSPO is doing great work and tell your friends and family about the work the RSPO is doing. You can also, when you're shopping, look for the RSPO trademark on products if you'd like to buy a product my one of my favorites and again i shouldn't have favorites girl scout cookies (laughs) so if you look at a box of girl scout cookies you will see the rspo uh, trademark on that box of girl scout cookies to assure you that it has been uh that cookies been produced using certified sustainable palm oil nice i love that and i love girl scout cookies what's your favorite girl scout cookie oh Samoas. Okay. 100%. I'm Thin Mint all the way. Thin Mints are just classic. Heaven. Yeah. Amazing. Have you, (laughs) this might be really gross. Have you ever tried, this is what I do, um, Thin Mints with peanut butter on them? No, no. (laughs) Mint and peanut butter together? I I know it sounds gross. I don't know why, where I came up with it, but I like to freeze the Thin Mints and then put peanut butter on them. And I think it was because of like the old parent trap movie with the Oreos and peanut butter, I think that's where it must've been born from. And now I'm like, yes, I need peanut butter on my thin mints. Okay. I'm gonna have to try that next, next girl <laughs> scout cookie season. I'll have to try that. I like it. Perfect. Very cool. And then it is time. It's time now. Don't you know, we've come to the end of the show, but there's one tale left to go. You're going to laugh and say, Oh no. It's time for the Rossipari poop story. Oh, poop stories. Poop story. There's so many poop stories. Poop story. I I would say there's a story that's really horrifying for me, and there's a story that's really horrifying for the poor five-year-olds that were around me. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give you two. Uh, so one of the grossest poop-related things that I ever had to deal with, and it happened a couple of times, is at the Cincinnati Zoo, they have uh, ambassador flamingos. And so part of uh, my job when it was like the the nice sunny season was we would walk the flamingos around the zoo. And then usually we would walk them over to this habitat space where there was another population of flamingos that weren't ambassador flamingos. They were just standard flamingos hanging out that people could go look at. And so we would like let them in. They would hang out all day. And at the end of the day, we would have to go collect the ambassador flamingos from the flock and walk them back to where they lived at night. Right. And so some of these flamingos would just happily walk out, be like, yep, it's bedtime. I'm ready to go in. Great. And some of them were like, no. Uh, So we had to put on these like big waiter boots and kind of start walking out there. And it was a flamingo habitat. So it had water in it. It had some little land islands. And depending on what part of the area the flamingo was in, like we would have to like jump out onto these little land islands to kind of like shepherd them back. And if you stepped in an area that was too deep, your waders just filled with flamingo poop water. Oh. 
and it was like if you've ever smelled flamingos oh yeah oh yeah i I have met some flamingos it is it is not pleasant no no. and there's nothing you can do at that point like you can't you can't clean it off you just got to accept it (laughs) (laughs) so that was always disgusting um and then there was one time where I had brought a, uh, it was a radiated tortoise named Tater to a, a group of kindergartners, so like roughly like five, six years old. And I don't know why, but whenever I took the tortoises out, they always went to the bathroom. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but before I worked with tortoises, I didn't realize like how much volume they could actually hold in their little tortoise bodies. <laughs> And so these poor kids were loving Tater. And then suddenly Tater just starts walking in front of them and just poop starts flowing. And the tortoise is walking it, spreading it across the classroom. The children are screaming. (laughs) And it's like a mix of like, I think is it five years old? You're like horrified, but you're also like, what is that? And like, you want to poke it with a stick. So like the the teacher's like trying to grab them, trying to get them to not touch it. Um, So I like to think that was a core memory that was formed for those kids. And then I, of course, had to be the one to clean it all up. (laughs) Of course. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, of course. It was great. And anytime you have palm oil questions or if anyone else in the world has palm oil questions, like always available to help answer them. Love it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, John. So there you have it, a really cool conservation story about uh, people from all different sides of this discussion coming together to help uh, fix a major problem. And I just, I love it so much. You can check out the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil online by going to rspo.org or find them on Instagram by going to at support sustainable palm oil. And of course, don't forget to go and download the palm oil scan app onto your smartphone. I'd like to take a moment to say thanks to Laura Shank, my Red Panda level patron, and to all of my patrons. And don't forget, y'all get some bonus uh, content from this episode, so go check out your Patreon. And uh, remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Steider. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.